Welcome back to Cartels, Conspiracies, and Camarena. I'm Jack Llewellyn. A couple of notes before we get started. Uh, last week, I mentioned that I was planning on going to Guadalajara next week and asked if there were things people wanted to see with respect to the Camarena case in particular. And I heard from a couple of people, and I really appreciate that. Unfortunately, Shortly after I recorded last week's episode, I found out that my guide and my good friend, uh, Lino, broke his leg badly in an accident, and he's in the hospital, recovering well, uh, but he can't um, be my guide for this trip, and since he's been with me since my first trip to Guadalajara, has helped me in innumerable ways. I really don't want to do this next trip without him, so I have postponed it until he is healthy again. I'll let you know when that's coming up, but again, know that I'm going back down there, going to go with some recording equipment, and anything you think you'd like to see, other people would like to see, people who don't know the Camarena case well might want to see, what might people who think they really know the case want me to to show or to talk about. So that's that. Uh, and then I want to get into the discussion for the day. And we're going to talk about China's relationship to the Mexican cartels. And I always try to let you know where I get some information from. A lot of it's from general news sources that I kind of compile. Some of it's from scholarly works that I take bits and pieces from today we're going to take from or use information provided from two critical sources one is some reports from the brookings institute written by vanda felbob brown we've talked about her before she does a lot of work on mexican cartels international issues international crime very respected scholar as we mentioned in the past, I don't always agree with her 100%, um, which probably says a lot more about me than her, but we're going to use a fair amount of materials from some papers she's written over the last uh, few years. And then there is a show on Nat Geo called Trafficked with Mariana Van Zeller. And Mariana Van Zeller is... Um, originally from Portugal. She is an investigative journalist. She's done a few uh, episodes of this show, Trafficked, that relate to uh, Mexican cartels and the, the drug trafficking of Mexican cartels. And uh, one in particular that I'll talk about, and I think they're fascinating and very well done. So I want to borrow from her and her work and her, the episodes, but I want to make sure that she gets credit. So with that, I want to talk about China and Mexican cartels. And part of this came from me thinking about and looking at a bunch of different reports and things, and how much do we really know? And what are really, what really are the key issues, the the trigger points, you know, the where are the weaknesses in the supply chain? What does the future look like? 
And as is so often the case, we could spend a couple of hours talking about this. But my goal for today is to not bore you for a couple of hours, but to try to consolidate things into what I see as the main issues and the main concerns or question marks going forward. As most of you know, the primary issue at the moment with respect to China's affiliation with the Mexican cartels is their supply of the precursors that are necessary to make fentanyl. We know now that it's not as it might have been a few years ago where China was almost the only source of the precursors. There are other sources now and Mexican cartels are working hard to find their own way of of getting the precursors. Nevertheless, I think it's fair to say that a critical component of the tremendous flow of fentanyl made in Mexico, transported to the United States, has its origins in precursors that originated in China. DEA Administrator Ann Milgram was recently testifying before Congress, and she repeatedly said that the only constraint on how much fentanyl the Mexican cartels can produce is the amount of precursor chemicals they obtain. The only restraint on how much fentanyl they can produce is how much of the precursor chemicals they can obtain. That's pretty amazing. She also said, and and the the testimony was nuanced, but you know one of the critical elements here is that there's just so much money to be made. She said in her testimony that if you get the chemicals from China, so say you get um, two kilograms of the precursors from China. That can um, be purchased for about $1,000, but it can produce almost 2 million, 1.75 million lethal doses of fentanyl. So think about that. $1,000 worth of precursor chemicals gives you 1.75 million lethal doses. So that says two things. It's one, what I already mentioned, there's so much money to be made. The other is, think about it, two kilograms, two kilos, that's small. And so even if your interdiction efforts are great, even if you somehow stem the tide of a lot of the precursors from China, two kilograms makes 1.75 million lethal doses. If two kilograms just slips through and you know it's going to, the the volume of that is absolutely staggering to me and I think shows that this is a way more complicated situation than sometimes it is given credit for or portrayed primarily, again, when you're 
talking about politics and Congress and, you know, let's go after the cartels. It's a very difficult situation. That program on Nat Geo that I talked about, Trafficked with Mariana Van Zeller, she did an episode on fentanyl and the flow of fentanyl uh, from China to Mexico into the United States. And she didn't start in China. She started in Mexico and she started in Mazatlan. And the precursors coming from China to get to Mexico, and here's essentially how some of it worked. You'd have large, large ships way out in the ocean. Then you'd have smaller boats that could move from those ships to what are hundreds and hundreds of fishing boats you know in the ocean especially in in places like Mazatlan where that's you know a popular pastime in addition to a, a legitimate industry so the precursors would go from large cargo ships by small boat or skidoo you know things like that to fishing ships of which there were many, and then from those fishing ships, again, by smaller speedboats or skidoos, to the uh, to the shore, where they are almost immediately picked up by people on bikes or um, scooters, motorcycles, taken to a safe house where they are held for a while before they're later transported to... Uh, chemical labs where they're going to be made and then where they're going to be uh, processed and, and made available for shipment into the United States. And this episode walks through all of that. A couple of interesting points. Number one, when you watch it, the speed and precision in which those precursor chemical packages are transferred from ship to ship to shore to someplace else is phenomenal. Um, there's actually a really interesting scene where essentially the chemicals are are there waiting to be picked up. Mariana Van Zeller, as the you know the the, the host and, and and the central figure, basically turns her back, turns back, and it's gone. I mean, gone, and it's taken to residential neighborhoods it's hidden in places that you wouldn't normally expect so again that skill and precision of the traffickers makes it hard to intercede the second thing is throughout the entire process the the two sides don't know anything about the other so the person delivering the the precursors from the shipping boat to the drop-off person has no idea who the drop-off person is, their relationship to anything else. And then that drop-off person who takes it to that central place where it's going to be stored for a while uh, knows nothing about the process. And that's by design. And it's also a good thing. There's one part in it with a line that I thought was really profound one of the chemists actually working on it and talking about that he doesn't know where it came from, where it's going, 
All he knows is what he's doing and how much money he's making. He says something to the effect of the cemeteries are full of people who knew too much. So the point of this is that stopping the flow of fentanyl in the first place is extremely difficult because of the factors we've talked about, because of the skill, and, and I mean that in an objective way, you know, the, the skill uh, and the knowledge and the forethought of the traffickers and the sheer volumes, right? And we've talked about that with respect to drugs flowing um, over the border. If you, if, if you try to get enough through, you're going to lose some, but you're going to get a lot through it as well. What about China? What's China's role in this in addition to the precursors? Well, one of the issues is how do you prosecute extraterritorial people? And one of the things we find in, in this process is that China, though it has the ability to prosecute sellers that sell the precursors to Mexican cartels, uh, knowing that they'll use them for production of drugs, China could prosecute those people, but it tends not to. Recently, the United States indicted several Chinese companies and individuals working with those companies for knowing complicity. And the indictment details how they provided advice to Mexican cartels on how to produce the fentanyl, how they got the fentanyl. What's interesting is not so much this indictment as it is China's reaction. So China reacted as you would expect. They accepted virtually no responsibility. They minimized the role of Chinese actors. Um, they said that Washington was using the fentanyl crisis as a pretext to impose sanctions on Chinese companies. And they laid the blame for the fentanyl crisis at the feet of the American citizens who are addicted to drugs or are using drugs who are abusing fentanyl. That it's demand that's producing the supply, not the other way around. And what's interesting to me is you probably have heard AMLO, you know, the Mexican president, repeating these almost exact same claims. No, it's not Mexico, it's the United States, it's the users, not the, the drug producers and the traffickers. What's important to note is that China has shown in the past that it can crack down on chemical companies and traders supplying precursors to other actors. And this was notable in the meth production era, and obviously it's still going on. We're focused more on fentanyl now. But at one time, the Chinese uh, companies were supplying chemicals and precursors to uh, the army in Myanmar for meth production. And these were dual-use chemicals. They weren't scheduled, but Chinese authorities forced the producers to implement tighter controls and 
to provide tip-offs so that they could better tackle and better react to their own meth use problems. So what you had in the, the case of the meth was these precursors are going out to to different um, areas in the South, Southeast Asia, including Myanmar. Um, but there also was the, then because it was being produced, these precursors were being produced and sold. What are you selling for? Are they for meth? Oh, I want to try meth, that sort of thing. And so it ended up that China had a significant meth problem. It then became in China's own interest to crack down on the use of these chemicals that, again, in and of themselves weren't illegal, but to crack down on the shipment of them with the intention that they be used to produce methamphetamines. So what you really have is kind of a consistent pattern with China. When China has a country that it wants to have good relations with, that it wants to align with for some reason, it will use its law enforcement as an element of cooperation and it will take some steps against the Chinese criminal organizations in response to to those issues. On the other hand, if you have countries where the relationship between them and China has deteriorated, such as the United States or Australia during, let's say, 2017 to 2012, China denies law enforcement cooperation. China denies that it's part of the problem. China points the figure at others. One of the other things to note, um, and I definitely want to give credit to um, Dr. Felbert Brown on this, but one of the other things to note is that synthetic opioids have diversified the type of Chinese actors, Chinese criminal actors, that are involved in drug trafficking. With fentanyl precursor smuggling, um, it generates smaller profits than methamphetamines, uh, but it, it makes up for it in volume. But the nature of synthetic opioids has turned the drug production and drug trafficking more into kind of small family-based groups. And it's no longer a situation where, you know, the Chinese triads or well-established Chinese criminal groups were the dominant players in production and trafficking. They're still involved. They're still involved in drug trafficking in other ways, but much less involved in the fentanyl trade issues, which also then makes it harder to intercede even if the Chinese government wanted to, right? If you have three or four or 10 major triads, it's easy to find them. It's easier to identify them. Now, Prosecuting them, arresting them may be a different story. But if you have 10,000 smaller family type groups that are shipping fentanyl precursors, that's a much more difficult task, even if the Chinese government wanted to do it. What else is going on between 
the cartels, and China. So if we get past the precursors and we get past uh, fentanyl, what else is going on? Well, one of the principal routes or avenues of cooperation between China and the cartels is in money laundering. And as I think goes without saying, if you're a cartel and you are making vast amounts of money from your production of fentanyl and the transfer and sale of that fentanyl in the United States, you have to find a way to deal with the money, right? And this is a problem as old as criminal enterprises. You know, it, it's as old as the old time Mexican cartels. You know, there's famous stories of Caro Quintero having, you know, closets stuffed floor to ceiling with money and absolutely nothing to do with it. So drug trafficking has or produces an immediate need for money laundering and the cartels have many avenues of money laundering, one of which is their association with China. The National Drug Intelligence Center, which is part of the U.S. Department of Justice, estimated that in 2011, and I know some of these, um, some of these dates are a little bit old, but we work with the information we have. But they estimated that Mexican and Colombian drug trafficking groups earn between $18 billion and $39 billion a year from wholesale drugs. That's more than a decade ago, so you can assume that it's significantly more than that now. Um, other groups have said Mexico alone, their drug export revenues were about six billion to twenty-one billion during during the years two thousand ten to two thousand eighteen. Two thousand eighteen being on the higher side. So let's just say they're making twenty billion dollars a year. You're going to have a need for money laundering, right? In 2021, a Chinese network that was operating in Chicago and New York was uh, dismantled. They had apparently laundered tens of millions of dollars of drug proceeds for Mexican cartels. One of the couriers, a Chinese national who was a legal permanent resident in the United States, reported that her average, average cash pickup was $500,000. Another example is between 2008 and 2009, uh, Mr. Li, I'm not going to try the first name, a Chinese businessman with U.S. US citizenship, laundered nearly $30 million of drug proceeds for Mexican drug trafficking organizations via a casino in Guatemala, a U.S. seafood export company, and Chinese bank accounts. For a long time, Colombia was a great venue for Mexican cartels to uh, launder their money. The Colombian cartels, the Colombian traffickers had... A long history, a well-established 
set of methods to launder their money, and they did so for the Mexican cartels, but at a profit, you know, a significant profit. There was a cost associated with the Colombians laundering the money. Two things have happened now. One is Colombia has gotten far more aggressive in its anti-money laundering efforts. There is a new um, aggressive anti-money laundering statute, which has probably had some effect on the amount of money laundering for the Mexican cartels that Colombia is now doing. Here's the other thing that's fascinating. Unlike the Colombians or others that will launder money for the Mexican cartels, the Chinese money laundering organizations have little interest in charging a significant fee for their services. Why? Because they want the cash itself, especially if it comes in dollars. In China, in 2015, there were laws introduced that were designed to stop the flow of money out of China and have created a huge market of Chinese nationals who want to spend money in the United States on what we'll call big ticket purchases, including things such as real estate, college tuition, et cetera, et cetera. But they can't get their money out of China. The Chinese brokers manage to bypass the, the formal banking systems, thus avoiding the money laundering measures that um, organizations on both sides, uh, you know, law enforcement on both sides of the borders trying to prevent, that takes away one of the biggest obstacles for the Mexican cartels, and it supplies Chinese nationals with the dollars they desperately want. It's a win-win, and as a result, where some of the um, the money laundering that had gone through Colombia, there are reports of, of some of it charging interest rates of or percentage rates, fees, that went as high as 20-25%. There are reports now that the Chinese brokers that, that do this will charge 1%, and sometimes even less than that. What else is interesting, the way they move the money is that the only interface with any formal banking system is within China where U.S. law enforcement has virtually no visibility. So they use encrypted platforms, burner phones, codes, etc. All these different ways to bring bulk cash to their Chinese contacts. The Chinese contacts then bring the money to the United States using Chinese businesses in the United States that have bank accounts in China. And in that way, the Chinese money is laundered in kind of what are called mirror transactions, where they convert the money into pesos, utilizing Chinese businesses with Mexican bank accounts. I don't really want to get too deep into the money laundering process other than to say the Chinese 
have a new way of doing it that's incredibly effective, very hard for law enforcement to uh, detect and to stop, and that is extremely valuable and profitable both for the cartels and the money launderers in China. Money laundering also goes in, in a couple of different directions. Remember, if you will, um, the Guatemalan, Ana Gabriela Rubio Zea, who was um, arrested in Guatemala for her role in kind of being a middle person between the, the fentanyl precursor sellers in China and the Sinaloa cartel. Um, you you may remember her um, in part because it was it was widely publicized. She's an attractive young woman. Um, there were pictures of her on the internet, you know, w- with a Yves Saint Laurent handbag in in Central Park. She was ice skating in a miniskirt in Central Park. She was notable. Well, when she got arrested. Um, and under a federal indictment, it says that she had um, been working for about 10 years ar- arranging the illegal imports. Okay. So, sometimes they were moved in food containers, in other containers, and then leveraging the corruption in, in the whole process, you know, that whole flow in order to get the... Um, the chemicals to the cartels. Here's what's interesting from the indictment, though. There was a, a representative, Wu Yang-ho, who worked for a chemical supplier, Wuhan Biological Technical Company Limited. She sent an encrypted message shortly before her arrest that says, we are the biggest in Mexico, so we can purchase a lot which is you know, kind of nice, direct evidence of that connection. So you have intermediaries between the cartels and um, the suppliers in China. The more intermediaries you have, the harder it may be to stop the flow, right? If you have many branches, you chop off one, there's still others. One of the other areas that I think people are going to be looking at a lot in the future is how cryptocurrency is helping Chinese crime operations launder the large sums of money from the Mexican cartels. And there is at least anecdotal evidence at this point that the speed with which the transfers and the laundering of the money and the return of um, pesos back to the Mexican cartels has been exponentially increased as a result of cryptocurrency. Here's something that I, I really was not aware of. And again, we'll go back to uh, Ms. Felba Brown, Dr. Felba Brown, and, and I want to give her credit for this. And there's actually, I, I'll tell you at the end here, there's a, an article you can look at. But what she calls a novel and highly pernicious method of laundering money and value transfer across illegal economies also linked to China 
is the increasing payments for Chinese precursors originating in Mexican wildlife products. So these illegally sourced wildlife products are coveted in China for traditional Chinese medicine, aphrodisiacs, um, other forms of consumption as a tool of speculation, etc. Um, and there are other wildlife commodities that can be used for money laundering, tax evasion, barter systems, and those include abalone, jellyfish, lobster. So instead of paying in cash, Chinese traffickers are paid in commodities. The amount of value generated by the wildlife commodity payments probably doesn't cover all the co- the precursor payment totals, but it's in the tens of millions of dollars. And um, that's likely a significant incentive to some of the Chinese laundering operations. Ms. Brown says, um, wildlife barter may not displace other methods of money laundering and value transfer But the increasing role of this method can devastate natural ecosystems and biodiversity in Mexico as the cartels steadily seek to illegally and legally harvest more and more of a wider range of animal and plant species to pay for drug precursors. She has a paper, China-linked wildlife poaching and trafficking in Mexico that you can find on uh, the uh, the the website uh, for the Brookings Institute. All right, what do we see going forward? What are people talking about going forward? Well, one thing that's interesting is who's going to control Europe? And there's a lot of speculation about the increased role of Chinese criminal groups in their own synthetic drug production and trafficking, right? At some point saying, wait a second, if we're sending all these chemicals to Mexico, they're turning it into fentanyl or other synthetic drugs, shipping it to the United States and making a whole lot of money. Why can't we make the do the same thing but send it to Europe? As we know and as we've talked about before, the Sinaloa cartel, CJNG, both are active participants in the drug trade in Europe to varying degrees of success. But what happens vis-a-vis the the sale of uh, the precursor chemicals between Mexico and China if the Chinese groups start to really compete with the Mexican cartels for the highly profitable and highly desirable market of Europe? Now, that assumes, again, that the Chinese groups want to intensify their own trafficking into Europe. It also assumes, for the sake of argument, that the level of usage in Europe will also increase to a level where having these suppliers with the quantum of supplies that they have actually is profitable. One of the other things that 
people are concerned about, and this came up in Administrator Milgram's recent testimony, is the advent of new drugs, right? You, you, you shut down marijuana, okay, we'll go to cocaine. You shut down cocaine, okay, we'll go to meth. You shut down meth, okay, we'll go to fentanyl. Okay, you shut down fentanyl. And of course, none of these were, fe- were shut down, but you understand the point. And with all the focus on fentanyl, now there's um, xylazine, which is a new drug that um, Ann Milgram described as the deadliest threat our country has ever faced, even deadlier than fentanyl. The DEA has found fentanyl xylazine, xylazine, sorry, mixtures in 48 states. That's as of 2022. Um, The actual number of drug overdoses that are related at, at any given time to this xylazine Um, isn't known, but it is out there, it's available, and it has DEA and other law enforcement agents concerned. And like fentanyl, one of its concerns is it can be frequently mixed into other drugs without users knowing it. It's said that Chinese suppliers price a kilogram of xylazine powder at between six and twenty dollars, so it it is dangerously cheap, dangerously cheap. Okay, um, so we've got that, and then there's going to be the next thing, right? There's going to be more and more drugs or new kinds of drugs every every time um, there becomes a focus on. One drug, there'll be something new. There'll be something else that they want to sell. You know, it's like your car dealership. The the Camry changes every year, every couple of years, even though people bought the Camry and liked it fine. And and maybe if they kept it the same, they would. But what do you do if you're in a competitive market? You want to make tweaks. You want to make the new thing. Drug dealers, drug traffickers, the sellers of drug precursors are the same. Of course, we want to know what's going to happen with um, Chinese cooperation with U.S. law enforcement. There are many recommendations that that people make, and in congressional testimony recently, a, a number had talked about um, you know different priorities, how they can, um, how U.S. law enforcement should try to work with the uh, their counterparts. In China, uh, even though that cooperation is always going to be limited, China is set in the next little bit to um, revise its anti-money laundering laws. And one of the biggest aspects of the proposed changes is to address the risks associated with virtual assets, something that concerns governments across the globe as far as money laundering um, and other illegal activities. The um, 
the full text of the revisions hasn't been uh, released or made public, but um, again, it goes, there was a, a report in um, January 31st by a Chinese digital news agency that said that they had seen some of the language and that, again, it focused on efforts to combat money laundering with those virtual assets. The executive director for the Chinese Center for Anti-Money Laundering Studies at a university in Shanghai says that this type of change that addresses money laundering and the use of virtual assets is most urgent and most necessary. One of the reasons that... China may be more interested in cracking down on money laundering using cryptocurrency and virtual assets is the government's commitment to keep pace with Web3 developments, to keep um, up with other uh, industrialized countries in how uh, cryptocurrency can be used. China has a ban on domestic cryptocurrency operations, which includes crypto mining and trading. But that doesn't mean that virtual assets or even cryptocurrency trading doesn't exist in China. Right. So the you know if they want to keep pace with developments around the world, then they're going to need to keep up with um, the use of non-fungible tokens, other virtual assets. That, does, you know, China for a long time has that dichotomy of we don't want to be part of a lot of the world, but we have to be. And, and so you'll see in, whether it's environmental or banking or, uh, other regulatory issues, China kind of pick and choose where they want to participate based on what helps them the most. And then the last thing that I think is is going to be interesting in the relationship between China and the Mexican cartels in the next couple of years is the degree to which there's additional fractional, fractionalization of Mexican cartels. We talked about the fact that the precursor chemicals can be um, produced and sold or obtained and sold from China um, on, a, on a much smaller level. By and large, the larger cartels are the dominant cartels, are the dominant criminal organizations with respect to the production and transfer of fentanyl, and other drugs in the United States, right? We're primarily talking about CDS and CJNG, and then that second tier of groups whose names we all know. But underneath those, there are criminal actors and smaller criminal organizations that are prolific throughout Mexico. If 
they're able to tap into the smaller suppliers, suppliers in China who can say, you don't need to take large volumes from us. You can take small volumes and, and sell it. Will that increase or change the flow of trafficking you know, into the United States, the production in Mexico into the United States when you have more and smaller actors? In addition, think about what happens, and, and we've talked about this a lot. What happens if El Mayo or El Mencho get arrested or die in the next couple of years? If El Mencho dies tomorrow, is there a CJNG in five years? Or are there 10 subgroups that used to be CJNG? Last week, we talked about all the subgroups that tie back to the Gulf Cartel or the Zetas in one way or another. That process could have a major impact on the relationship between the cartels and the suppliers and launderers in China, which then has a dramatic impact on how law enforcement throughout the world can try to stop that flow, that production, that money laundering. Okay, I hope that made sense. I hope I, I found it interesting. Again, from a purely academic standpoint, the way the cartels work, the way they interact with the Mexican or with the Chinese suppliers and money launderers, to me, is absolutely fascinating. It's tragic, it's criminal, but it's very interesting. And as I've said for a long time on this podcast, I think the more we understand the cartels, we understand how they work, how they operate, how they think, the more we understand that, the better we as an electorate can be informed, can have that informed opinion, drive our politics, drive uh, law enforcement. And I think it's a beneficial thing. That's why I really like going through these and uh, discussing them with you. All right. So that's it for today. A couple of things. Going back to Guadalajara, don't forget if there's something that you think is, is interesting or important, let me know. Check out the newsletter. Again, I pimp that every week. It's free. I think you'll find lots of interesting stuff in there. And the last thing is, last week I said when we started talking about Guadalajara and things, we were going to go back to the Camarena case in a, a few different ways. And some of that's going to be pushed back, but we are going to have a couple of episodes uh, talking more about the Camarena case and focusing particularly on Mexican corruption and corruption that impacted not only the immediate investigation relating Agent Camarena's abduction and, and tragic murder, but also subsequent events that kind of flow from that case and, and the events surrounding it. So that's something else to look for. As always, if you have topics, thoughts, things you want me to talk about, let me know. And that, my friends, is Cartels, Conspiracies, and Camarena for this week, and we will see you next week.
Thanks, everyone.